So what's in a name? Apparently, a lot. There were three 10-year-old boys who were up to no good going into the zoo. Once they passed the gate, they went directly to the elephant cage. Momentarily, there was a commotion in the crowd. It caught the attention of the security guards. They went and apprehended these three 10-year-old boys, took them to the security headquarters at the front of the zoo, sat them in front of the supervisor. Supervisor looked at them and said, boys, I'm going to ask you two questions. Number one, what is your name? Number two, what were you doing at the elephant cage? The first boy said, well, my name is Gary, and I was just throwing peanuts in the elephant cage. Second boy said, well, uh, my name is Larry, and I too was just throwing peanuts into the elephant cage. The third boy was visibly shaken, quite nervous. The supervisor said, son, what is your name? Well, sir, my name is Carl, but my friends call me Peanuts. (laughs) So what's in a name? Well, apparently a lot. My sister went to high school with a girl whose first name was Holly and last name was Wood. My sister went to school with Hollywood. True story. In college, uh, one of my roommates, he fell in love with a girl named Crystal. He ended up marrying her. So Mike married a girl whose first name was Crystal, middle name was Shanda, last name was Lear. He married Crystal Chandelier. I would always tell him, Mike, you cannot give her your last name. You've got to take her last name, otherwise you're going to mess up a great name. That's a true story. I think that for most parents, we agonize over what to name our children. We do this because, well, we know it's important. And we know that that name is going to stick with them all their life. I remember that when Jane Ellen got pregnant, we knew that the baby was going to be a girl. And we just liked the name Molly. There was nothing about it that was a family name. We just liked it as personal preference. But her middle name was a name that we took a long time to select. See, it took a while for us to get pregnant. And so every time we saw this child, we wanted to be reminded that she was a gift. So we named her Grace, Molly Grace. Every time we say her name, every time we said it when she was a little girl, even every time we say it now, it's a reminder that she is a gift from God. What's in a name? Apparently a lot. When Jane Ellen got pregnant a second time, we knew it was going to be a bouncing baby boy. And we once again wrestled and agonized, what are we going to name this young child? And I knew pretty early on, I wanted his name to be Nathan. The reason is because I wanted to name him after the prophet Nathan. Because I thought to myself, if God gives me a son, I want him to have the courage, like Nathan the prophet, to be able to stand up to the king of his culture and say, thou art the man. God answered my prayer. He gave me a son. I named him Nathan. We thought about the middle name, and we wanted him to carry on uh, Jane Ellen's family, and so we gave him her maiden name, Tilford. Tilford. 
So Nathan Tilford Watkins. What's in a name? Well, apparently a lot. When you and I come to the third commandment, God has something to say about his name. Today we continue our sermon series entitled First and Ten, a study of the Ten Commandments. I invite you to take a Bible, turn to Exodus chapter 20. I want to read one verse in your hearing, verse 7. Once you find your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. Exodus chapter 20, I want to read verse 7. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Heavenly Father, we pray that your name will not only be found on my lips, but also in our lives. Help me to preach today. I ask this in the greatest name possible, the Lord Jesus Christ. And all God's people said, amen. You may be seated. In the first commandment, the Lord, the sovereign savior of the universe, demands an exclusive relationship with you. In the second commandment, he tells you how you can approach him by giving him your all, all attention, all affection, all allegiance, for you shall not make for yourself an idol out of anything. Now, when you stop and consider the first two commandments, they are pretty all-encompassing. There's nothing on the fringe. There's nothing out of bounds. For the Lord says, you shall have no other gods before me or besides me. I'm in a class all by myself, and you've got to give me ultimate allegiance. I want to be exclusive with you. It's not like he's one among a top ten list. No, he's one, and there is no number two, number three, number four, etc. It's all-encompassing. You get to the second commandment, it is equally all-encompassing. You shall not make for yourself an idol an object of worship out of anything. Now, if anything can become an idol, it stands to reason that everything is idol ready. So an idol can come from anything in your life. It can come from everything in your life. Once again, it is all encompassing. When you and I come to the third commandment, we think to ourselves, finally, he gives us a commandment we can keep. Finally, we have a commandment we can pigeonhole. Finally, we have a commandment we can corner in the back of the room. He simply says, you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. Okay, we think to ourselves, got it. I just can't misuse his name. I cannot speak his name in vain. I cannot speak his name with profanity. I got it. That's what it means to not misuse his name. We think to ourselves that all I have to do is not say the name of God followed by a cruel vulgarity that somehow is pretty commonplace in our culture that sounds as if it's God's last name. As long as I avoid that phrase... I'll be okay. As long as I don't profane his name, as long as I don't speak with vulgarity, as long as I don't take his name in vain, I'll be all right. And then someone comes along and says, well, it may be a little bit broader than that. You know, while we as Christians, we say we don't want to say that particular phrase, we have sanctified other phrases so that they almost appear more palatable. They almost appear more culturally acceptable. So someone will come along and say, not only is God not 
allowing you uh, to say his name in vain with profanity, but also those other phrases, those other phrases that we just kind of throw alongside common language. OMG, oh my gosh, oh my goodness, gosh darn, or my personal favorite, daggum. Right? I mean, those phrases that we're just not supposed to say, those other phrases that are, well, socially acceptable, maybe even some of that here in the church, that we think to ourselves, well, well, those phrases, so pastor, are you telling me that those phrases also are out of bounds? Yeah, those phrases too. Because those are just substitutes of the vulgarity. So you sit there and think to yourself, okay, I thought that coming in today with you speaking on the third commandment, I thought that just mean, meant that I wasn't supposed to cuss. I wasn't supposed to take God's name in vain. But now you've expanded the definition just a little bit to include other phrases. All right? So we've got half a dozen phrases that we're not supposed to say. Once again, that's a, a lot easier than don't make an idol out of anything and you can't worship any other God before me or besides me. Okay, if all I have to do is just keep track of, you know, five, six, seven phrases or words then, that I won't say, then, then okay, that'll be good, and I'll be able to keep at least one of these blasted commandments. Because i got a sneaky suspicion, Pastor, you're going to try to tell me I break every single cotton-picking one. But, but here on this third one, at least, at least, if I don't say those half a dozen phrases, I'll be good, right? I'll be all right. Well, let me tell you how hard that is, for starters, I mean, do you know how commonplace these phrases are? I mean, you hear them just in language. I mean, it just is littered with these phrases. Um, not only uh, in, in our verbal conversation, but even in our written conversation. I mean, our conversation is littered with these phrases. These phrases are on television shows and radio talk shows. These words, these phrases can be found on the lips of an athlete when they miss the ball. All the camera has to do is zero in on that athlete and you see it, boop, there it is. Sometimes the camera goes to the coach and the coach gets so frustrated because that idiot of a player didn't do what I told him to do and we've repeated it all week long and then he may say a dirty word, right? And the camera sees that and then quickly jumps off but, but, but we see it on display in the athletic field, in the athletic arena, in our written correspondence to each other, in our verbal correspondence with each other. When somebody cuts us off on the interstate, something just may blurt right out. I think that, that these words, these phrases, they, they find residence in far too many garages, don't they? In our homes. We take the hammer, we miss the nail, we hit our finger and out comes this phrase. Of course, in the first service, they kind of look like you're looking right now. So apparently that does not happen in your garage, but I've heard that it happens in other people's garages. Because we just have a propensity to say things out of anger or frustration or impulsion. So if you come to the third commandment and you think to yourself, now wait a minute, what the third commandment means is that we just have to rid our vocabulary of a few choice words and phrases, well, for starters, that may be harder than you think. But I want to go one step further. Because I think the third commandment is much broader than just forbidding, forbidding a few choice phrases from your vocabulary. I think that when you and I come to the third commandment, 
What the Lord is saying is that uh, you need to check every word that crosses your lips. It's not just a few words you must omit. It's you've got to check every word that crosses your lips. Okay, now, now we're getting into the realm of all-encompassing again, Pastor. Now we're getting into the realm where you're telling me I've got to check every word I say not, not just to make sure I don't say certain words, but to evaluate every word that I actually say. Are you telling me I've got to examine, I've got to investigate every single word that I say? And I would answer you, yes. That is in keeping with the third commandment. That you and I are not to misuse the name of the Lord which reminds us that God gave us a mouth so we would glorify his name Therefore, by default, we've got to check every word that comes across our lips. Now, if the studies are right, uh, ladies, this may be more difficult for you than men. And why I say that is because the studies reveal that ladies on average speak 20,000 words a day. Men, on the other hand, speak about 7,000 words a day. But regardless of whether it's 7,000 words or 20,000 words, that's a lot of words. A lot of words that you've got to check and you've got to make sure that every word that tumbles from my lips, I've got to make sure that word glorifies God. In keeping with the third commandment, when he says, you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for he will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name, that must imply that you and I have to evaluate every single word that comes across our lips. If that's not hard enough, can I expand it even one step further? In antiquity, a person's name was not only an identification marker to distinguish Bill from Bob and Sally from Jill. It was not only a way of distinguishing one person from another, but a name communicated essence and character. A name communicated something about that person, not just who he is, but also what he does. So when God comes to the third commandment and says, you shall not misuse my name. What he's saying is, I don't want you to misuse my name in your lips, nor do I want you to misrepresent my character in your life. Because as Christ bearers, as children of God Almighty, we are ambassadors of the King. We are to represent him well. So our life is to represent the holy life of God. So in the third commandment, he's telling us, not only do I want, to, want you to check everything that you say, but also I want you to evaluate and investigate everything that you do. Okay, wait a minute, pastor. Now, this is really all-encompassing. I mean, this is just in line with commandment number one and commandment number two. It's almost as if God is, is demanding exclusive rights over everything in my life. You're catching up on the pattern, because that's exactly what's God, that's what God will do throughout all of these 10 commandments. He's not approaching a sliver of life. He's not just addressing a slice of life. He wants the totality of your life. He deserves it, 
He demands it. He's the only one worthy of it. So here in commandment number three, he says, you've got to check everything that you say and you've got to check everything that you do. Your identity and your activity, who you say you are and what you say you actually do. Because all throughout the Bible, God's identity and his activity are inextricably tied together. Who God is, is revealed by what he does. And what he does accurately identifies who he is. And as the children of God Almighty, we have to mirror the Father. We have to say what he says. We've got to do what he does. He is holy. We must be holy. So the third commandment is telling us that our language about God reveals the level of love we have for God. We ought not misuse his name by our lips. And we must not misrepresent his character in our life. Let me show you how God ties together his identity and his activity. In the mindset of Israel, God is both hidden and revealed. There's something about God that is hidden. Something about God that is, in the words of Rudolf Otto, mysterium tremendum, tremendous mystery. There's something about God that you can't figure out. You'll never get to the point this side of heaven, you'll never get to the point where you know all of God's knowledge, all of his grace, all of his love, all of his power, all of his peace, all of his presence. There's, there's an inexhaustibility of God. We can't get to the depths of God. We can't get high to reach over God. We can't get around God. He is so vast. He is so awesome that there is something about him that is hidden from us. It is a mystery. There is a tremendous mystery about God. Whenever you run into somebody who's got God figured out, run in the opposite direction. Because that person does not have the God of the Bible figured out. They've got the God of their own making figured out. But the God of the Bible is a God who is hidden and yet revealed. Because it is God who bridged the gap to humanity. It is God who initiated the relationship. It is God who established the communication. It is God who made himself known. The Savior came on first name basis with the servant. You remember the story? It's tucked away in Exodus chapter 3. It's there that we find Moses. He is a seasoned shepherd. He's been doing this for some 40 years. By the time we catch up with Moses in Exodus chapter 3, he's 80 years young. He's on the backside of Mount Horeb. He's there at the mountain of God. He's minding his own business, tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law. When all of a sudden he sees in the distance a bush that's on fire but not being consumed. The fact that the shrub was ablaze was not all that impressive. In the dry, arid heat, it was commonplace for shrubs to instantly combust. 
What made this site so interesting is that the blaze just kept going. The shrub was not burned up. Moses said, I'm going to go check out this strange site. When he got over there, God got his attention, entered him into a conversation. Moses, I have a job I want you to do. I want you to go down to Egypt, to gain an audience with Pharaoh, and I want you to tell him, let God's people go. And Moses began to backpedal. He gave numerous excuses of why he was not the one cut out for the job. Ultimately, he asked him, well, what is your name? If they ask me, what is the name of the God that sent you to us, what am I supposed to say? The Lord said, you tell them I am sent me to you. The name I am. It's hard to understand. It's really equally hard to pronounce. In the Hebrew language, uh, the name for God only has really uh, four consonants. If we transliterated it, it would be Y-W-Y-H. Later on, they added a few vowels to it, made it easier to pronounce. We just would say Yahweh. Yahweh, the name of God. Most Jewish people would not even say the name I just said to you because they would think to themselves, third commandment says, don't misuse his name. If I don't pronounce his name, I can't misuse it. So if I don't even say it, I won't be guilty of breaking the third commandment. Eventually, there were some rabbis that would say it. In your English translation of the Old Testament, whenever you find the word Lord written in all capital letters, that's the word Yahweh. It tips you off as the English reader that what you're reading is the very name of God, the name that God gave. Don't ever miss that. It is God that initiated the relationship. It is God that uh, initiated the concept of being on first name basis. Of course, God knew Moses, but God wanted Moses to know him. So he told him his name. My name is Yahweh. My name is I am. You tell them I am sent me to you. This is God's holy name. Now his name also communicates what he does. In a place like Isaiah chapter 43, says, I, the Lord, I am the Lord your God. There is no other Savior besides me. That God is bound and found in his identity and activity as Savior. In Genesis chapter 22, it is Yahweh Jireh. It is the Lord who provides in Genesis 22, Father Abraham was told by God, take your one and only son Isaac, go up Mount Moriah, and there I want you to sacrifice him. What made this so problematic was that Abraham knew that God did not delight in human sacrifice. I mean, there were other pagan gods, and they delighted in child sacrifice. Melech is one of them. And there were numerous people that would sacrifice their babies into the arms of Melech, that pagan god. But Yahweh was not like that. Yahweh had never demanded, never hinted, never insinuated that he delighted in child sacrifice. 
And yet here in Genesis 22, the Lord says to Father Abraham, take your one and only son Isaac and go up on Mount Moriah and there offer him as a burnt sacrifice unto me. What makes it even more disturbing is that the previous chapter, the Lord already identified that God's favor and blessing would go to and through Isaac and his offspring. So why? Why would God, after declaring that the promise would be found in Isaac and through the offspring of Isaac, now, why one chapter later would he demand the crucifixion, the execution of his one and only son? And yet the next morning, Abraham got up. He saddled his donkey, got everything together, called the servants, and off they went to the mountain of God. They saw the place in the distance. And Abraham said to his servants, y'all wait here. I don't know if he used the word y'all, but we're Southern, so I think he probably did say y'all. Y'all stay here. We will go worship and we will come back. That statement always gives me goosebumps when I stop to consider that Abraham said before the event takes place, we will go and we will come back. How, How will we come back, Abraham, if you're going to slaughter one of the two of the we? He must believe in resurrection. He must believe in God and his ability to bring life out of death. We will go worship and we will come back. Off they went. They went up the mountain. Of course, Isaac, who is a teenage boy, uh, he realizes that everything's there except for the lamb. Where is the lamb? God will provide the lamb, Abraham said. And right before Abraham was to drive the dagger into his son, he just wanted one slice and dice. He didn't want to have to repeatedly have to stab his son. So he probably covered the eyes of Isaac. He raised the dagger in the air. And right before he thrust it through the heart of his one and only son, the beloved son Isaac, right before he killed him, it is the angel of the Lord who said, Abraham, Abraham, stop. Now I know that you won't withhold anything from me, not even your one and only son Isaac. Abraham looked up, and there in the thicket was a ram, a male lamb caught by its horns. And that male lamb was sacrificed in place of Isaac. It was an example of substitutionary atonement. It was a foreshadowing of what Jesus would do on Mount Calvary. And there, Abraham and Isaac worshiped God. And when you get to the end of Genesis 22, God is described as the Lord Jireh, the Lord who provides on this mountain. You fast forward to Exodus 31. Exodus 31 is one chapter before the golden calf debacle. So you know that Moses is on the mountain. He's with God. God is giving him all the rules, regulations, and stipulations. He's given not only the top 10 lists, but all of the ramifications that come from that. When you get towards the end of Exodus chapter 31, it is the Lord who speaks some more specifications about Sabbath. We are told that it is Yahweh Mekadesh, it is Yahweh who sanctifies. It is Yahweh who sets his people apart to be different than the world, to be holy, for he is holy, to be set apart on this day called the Sabbath so that we can come together as a community and worship God Almighty. Because who God is is bound by what he does and what we do ought to reflect who God is. Because God is the God who sets apart. You go to a place like Judges chapter 6. And there Gideon describes God as Yahweh Shalom, the God of peace. When Gideon was raised up to be one of the mighty judges of Israel's history, 
It is Gideon who built an altar to God and worshiped him before he said that God is the God of peace, not the God of chaos, not the God of destruction, not the God of confusion, but ours is the God of peace. Who he is is described by what he does. What he does helps our understanding of who he is and who he is and what he does ought to be reflected in who we are and what we do. So you come to this third commandment when the Lord says you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. He is saying you need to check every word that crosses your lips for do not misuse my name by the words you speak and I don't want you to misrepresent my character in your life. So you've got to check what you say, you've got to check what you do because you, my friend, are set apart to be holy. Why? Because God is holy. So this third commandment is as all-encompassing as the first one and the second one. And some of us may think to ourselves, but right now this is overwhelming. For me to think I've got to check every word, I've got to check all of my actions, I've got to check my attitude, I've got, to, I've got to check what I do because God will not hold me guiltless if I misuse his name. Have you ever profaned the name of God? Have you ever broken the third commandment? We profane the name of God, yes, when we speak vulgarity, when we speak God's name in vain, Yes, when we do the other abbreviations or the other sanctified words that seem to be more palatable in our culture and our understanding. Yes, we profane the name of God when we tell a cruel joke and God is the punchline of that joke. Yes, we profane the name of God in those ways, but do you profane the name of God in other ways? I want to contend this morning that we profane God's name when we come in to worship and we just flippantly speak the name of Christ. In the time of worship, as we sing our songs, if we just kind of go through the motions, not really engaged, not engaged mentally or emotionally or spiritually, not connected to who we are talking about, not remembering what he has done, Lord, I need you. Oh, I need you. Every hour, I need you. Oh, bless me now, my Savior, because um, I come to thee. Amen. What a great worship service, wasn't it? It's when we approach God in a flippant fashion. We profane the very name of God. When we enter into worship and we're just not, we're not into it. We're not connected. We're not taking into account who he is and what he's done in our life. We are profaning the very name of God. Sometimes people profane the name of God even as they pray. For they ask for something that is not biblical. They ask for something that is contrary to the work and will of God. And we ask it in God. God's name, amen. And sometimes we use that just as a tagline at the end of the prayer because we don't know what else to pray. And sometimes we may profane the name of God just by flippantly ending our prayer in Jesus' name, amen. Oh, I wonder, sometimes we profane the name of God when we fail to testify to his goodness. 
Friend, it's not only what you say, but sometimes it's just standing and sitting in silence that profanes the name of God. We ought to give testimony. We ought to stand up on the truth of God. We ought to be eager in evangelism. We ought to tell our one who Jesus is. But when God gives us that opportunity and right there in front of us is that person that we've been thinking about and praying for, a great opportunity to share the good news of Jesus, we are mute and silent. And in that silence, we are profaning the name of God Almighty. Oh, sometimes we profane his name when simply we fail to realize that the person we're speaking to is equally made in the image of God. And we treat them in our language as if they're a dog. And we fail to remember that that person is just as loved as I am in the sight of God. That person is made equally in the imago Dei, in the image of God. And when we fail to recognize that other person made in the image of God and we speak to them words that are cruel, we speak to them words that are just nothing more than gossip and slander, we speak to them in such a vile way, we are profaning the very name of God. Oh, friends, I think that this third commandment is much more expansive and exhaustive than we first thought. Because this commandment calls us to check every word that we say and even to check the words we don't say that we should have said. And it also prompts us to examine the activity of our life to see if we are accurately representing the one who is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. The author of the Proverbs tells us that blessed is the man or woman who sets a guard over his lips. For the one who puts a guard over his lips guards his life. In the tongue, there's both life and death. In the New Testament, we are told that out of the overflow of the heart, the person speaks. You ever been in that situation where you said something, uh, something just blurted out, and you thought to yourself, where did that come from? That does not sound like me. And my response to you is, yes, it does. It sounds exactly like you. It sounds like the cruel, vile heart that's inside your chest. You say, Pastor, why would you say that? Because it is Jeremiah who says the heart is deceptive. It is beyond all cure. Who can figure it out? When we say something and we think to ourselves, that doesn't sound like me, that's a check. When we ought to realize, yes, it does sound like me, as despicable and vile as I am, that does sound like me. The third commandment causes us to examine everything we say and everything that we do. Because God does not want us to misuse his name in our lips, nor does he want us to misrepresent his character in our life. In Proverbs 22, the chapter is most known for verse 6. Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he shall not depart from it. But the first verse of Proverbs 22, I think, is even more powerful. A good name is more desirable than riches. A good name is more desirable than riches. I've got to tell you, friends, there is a name 
that I love to hear. And I love to sing its worth. It sounds like music in my ear. It's the sweetest name on earth. Oh, how I love Jesus. Oh, how I love Jesus. Oh, how I love Jesus because he first loved me. Jesus is the name that calms my fears. Jesus is the name that wipes away my tears. Jesus is the name that soothes my soul. Jesus is the name that makes me whole. Jesus is the name of my king. Jesus is the one to whom I submit everything. Jesus is the one who forgives my waywardness. Jesus is the one who mends my brokenness. Jesus is the one upon whom I build my life. Jesus is the one who takes me through strife. It was Joseph who heard from the angel, you'll give him the name Jesus. Why? Because he'll save his people from their sins. It is Peter and John who stand before the Sanhedrin and they say salvation is found in no one else. There's no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. It's the name of Jesus. It is Paul who says, it is Philippian court correspondence that there is a name above every name that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord I don't know about you but I want Jesus to be the guard of my life I want Jesus to be a guard over my lips I want Jesus to be a guard over my actions I want Jesus to be a guard over my attitude I want Jesus in front of me I want Jesus behind me I want Jesus above me I want Jesus behind Beneath me. I want Jesus to the right of me. I want Jesus to the left of me. I want Jesus inside of me. I want Jesus sticking out of me. I want Jesus over my mind. I want Jesus over my heart. I want Jesus directing my hands. I want Jesus directing my feet. I want people to look at me and say, there goes a Jesus man. For all I see is Jesus sticking out of him. I know I will fail. I will fail every day and twice on Sunday. But when I have Jesus, I've got everything that I need. So give me Jesus, 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 Jesus. It's the sweetest name I know. It fills my every longing, keeps me singing as I go. Our text tells us that God will not hold anyone guiltless from misusing his name. God will not hold anyone guiltless from misrepresenting his character. And before I take my seat, can I just remind you that the one who was guiltless became guilty so that we who are guilty may be declared guiltless in his sight. Because Jesus, the God-man, fully God, fully human, not a creation of God, another God, a lesser God, but Jesus who is God. He stepped out of heaven and stepped into earth, lived a perfect life. He was handed over for a criminal's death, not because he did anything wrong, but because you and I do everything wrong. And this Jesus was bruised and battered and spit upon and whipped. He stumbled and staggered through the streets of Jerusalem. He went up Mount Calvary. And there, in the third decade of the first century on that faithful Friday, Jesus died in a six-hour window of time. He took all of your guilt upon himself. 
Someone has to pay. And Jesus came to say, I will die for the guilty so they can be declared guiltless in the sight of God because of the things that they've said and the bad things that they've done. Jesus said, I will go and I will die for them. And Jesus called the shots. He said, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they're doing. Into your hands, I commit my spirit. Ultimately, he said to Telestai, it is finished. He bowed his head, gave up his ghost. They took down his dead body, placed him into a borrowed grave, wrote a stone in front of it. And on the third day, the stone was rolled away, not to get Jesus out, but to get us in so that we could see that the tomb is empty, that Jesus is alive, that the dead man began to breathe again. And it makes all the difference in the world. So just give me Jesus. Because friends, I need to tell you, I'm guilty. I'm guilty of misname, misusing the name of God. I am guilty of misrepresenting his character and his essence. And I stand before you as a guilty person, but I stand before you as one who is redeemed. I stand before you as guiltless, not because I've never broken the third commandment. I am guiltless because the king of all kings came and he died for all of my guilt. All of my punishment, all of my condemnation was placed upon him. That's not just true for me. That's true for anyone who believes. Anyone who comes to him in faith. Anyone who says, Jesus, I believe you are who you say you are. And Jesus, I give you all of my sin. And Jesus, I want you to help me to live right before a watching world. And Jesus will not reject anybody who comes to him in faith. So maybe this morning there's somebody here. And you just never have trusted Jesus. You're guilty of misusing his name. You're guilty of misrepresenting him. You're guilty of all of that and so much more. And today, friend, I want you to know that Jesus came to seek and to save you. He is the name that's above every name. Maybe you're here today and you need to trust him as Savior. Let's do so right now at the invitation moment. I'm going to pray. And after I pray, I'm going to stand down front. The band's going to come. They're going to lead us in a song. If you're not a believer, I want you to come forward. Take one of the pastors by the hand and say, I need to accept Jesus today. But maybe I'm speaking to a lot of Christians. Maybe many of you are redeemed. But let's be honest. You're, even though you're redeemed, you're still guilty sometimes of breaking the third commandment. Maybe you say some of those things you're not supposed to say. <laughs> oh, but even deeper still. Maybe you don't check all the words that come across your lips. And maybe you don't evaluate all the actions that you do or some of the actions you fail to do that you ought to do. And in this very moment, it's the Holy Spirit that's convicting you. It's not me. It's the Holy Spirit that's convicting you and saying, drawing you unto himself, saying, please come and fall on your face before me. Come to the altar. Just repent of your sin. I know you're redeemed, but that doesn't mean you don't need to repent. You repent of your sin. You walk out of here. You say, Lord, help me to allow you to be so all-encompassing in my life that you stick out of everything I say and everything that I do. Maybe you're here today and you need to join a church. This would be a great place for you to be plopped and planted. And maybe God is drawing you here today. Whatever it is God is prompting you to do, I'm just um, encouraging you to be obedient. I'm going to pray. The band's going to lead us. Ministers are going to stand down front. And you respond with whatever the Lord is telling you to do. Heavenly Father, all we want and all we need 
is Jesus in our life? So Jesus, please convict us of sin and Jesus, please point us to you. If there's one who's lost, does not know you as Savior and Lord, I pray that today is the day of salvation. If there's someone who is a Christian, they're redeemed, they're part of the family of God. But let's just be honest. When nobody else is watching, we are foul. We are vile. And we need your help. So Lord, we come to you asking for your help in time of need. Lord, we do need you. The great God of the cosmos, we need you. We pray this all in Jesus' name, amen.